In your Bible, please, the book of Genesis, chapter number 1. I'll give you a few minutes to find that. Okay. <laughs> Genesis, chapter number 1 in your Bible today. Did you bring your Bible? Hold it up in the air if you brought it today, okay? Amen. Look across. Keep them up for a minute. I want everybody to look across there and savor the moment. See that choir? Y'all got yours? Okay. Wonderful. Boy, I tell you what, that's a good sign. That's a sign of a healthy church when people bring the Word of God to church. Among other things, it means they expect the preacher to use it, doesn't it? And the second thing is, is they're going to check on him as he uses it. And they're going to find out is what he, preach, what he is preaching uh, God's Word. So I'm glad you bring it. Always bring your Bible. I tell people you can wear a pair of blue jeans or you can wear a $800 suit. But you're not dressed for church if you don't have a Bible. So bring your Bible, okay? Genesis chapter 1, stand with me as we read from the first chapter of God's Word. We're going to read verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the heaven, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it is meant for meat. And verse 31, please. God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good up until now he has said it was good in verse 31 he says and it was very good and the evening and the morning were the sixth day you may be seated <clears throat> The subject today is God's plan and our purpose. God's plan and man's purpose. I want you to begin today thinking with me about this thought itself. God has a plan. God has a plan for absolutely everything. So of necessity then it is a very big plan, is it not? God has a plan, and his plan is eternal. It, is, it began before the world was ever created, and the plan will endure long after the world is gone. The plan includes all people. Every single person ever born was in that plan. The plan is for all time, for the year one uh, after Adam and Eve was created, whatever year that was, uh, 
and for 2019, and if time endures, a thousand years hence. God's plan is for all times. It is eternal. It involves everything, every single facet of life, the living life on the planet, but the planet itself, the stars, the moon, the entire universe is included in that plan. That plan includes all the commodities of life. Every single thing that he created, from the air that we breathe to the gold and silver, the coal, the oil, the grass that grows on the ground, the trees that are in the forest, the oceans, the dry land, that plan is comprehensive and universal. And I want to emphasize again, that plan involves you. Now, that's always been a little difficult for me to get my mind around because, you see, I'm so absolutely insignificant in that big scheme of things. And we all feel that way. Comparing myself to the universe and the stars and all of that, what am I? What is man that thou uh, has made him, the Bible says? So what is man? Why, why is man significant? Well, he is only significant because of what this passage teaches right here. God has a plan. It's a big plan. It's an eternal plan. It involves everything, and it involves everybody, all the commodities on the entire earth and throughout the universe, and his plan involves you. Now, having said that, let's go to verse 26. And God created man, and he created him in his image, it says. Notice it says, God said, let us create man. Mark that us. That's part of the reason we believe in the Trinity. He didn't say, let me make man in my image. He said, let us, plural, make man in our image. And so God the Father was the voice there in creation. In verse 2 of chapter 1, you'll see that the Spirit moved upon the waters. So the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. And thirdly, you will turn over the book of John chapter 1. It says that Jesus was there and that the Word was there in the beginning and there was not anything made that was not made by Him. Colossians chapter 1 also describes that in detail. So, the, all three persons of the Trinity were present on creation morning. And the Bible says he made man in his image. I want you to think about that word image. I just got an illustration of it with that picture that Froilan drew. That was not me. That was an image of me kneeling and praying. If I look in the mirror as I shave, I don't see myself. I may say that. S someone may say, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. No, you're not. You're looking at an image, a reflection of yourself. And so when God created us, he created us as a reflection of himself. We are to reflect him in the world in which we live. The image of God that we bear as human beings is not a physical image. The image is not of his hands and his face and his torso. The image of God is a spiritual image that we bear. 
The image of God is an intellectual image that's stamped upon humankind. And for example, God thinks and he reasons. Well, you and I have the capability to think and to reason. God created everything. You and I have the capacity to create. And so we procreate. We have children just like our Heavenly Father had his children. And we can think about things and carry them out. We can plan. You don't know of any animal species that can do that. They operate off of instinct. But we, we can visualize something and then get the proper materials and make that something. Froyland sat here and visualized something and then drew it on a piece of canvas a while ago. We have an imagination. We can imagine things that do not yet exist. And so we can invent things that help us in our life. So planning and visualization and, and imagination are all f- things that the animal world cannot do because they're not made in the image of God as is a human being. God communicated. In fact, God is a relational being. That's very important. Don't let me go so fast that you miss it here. When I say that God is a relational being, I mean that he relates to others than himself and other than the creation. Before the world was ever created, there was relationship between the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They communicated with each other. They talked. They got to know each other. Obviously, they knew, uh, they knew all about one another being God. They could communicate their thoughts. They could write them down. They could talk about them. God is a relational being. God communicates. We are relational beings. We communicate, or at least we should. And when we do, we relate to other people. They come to know us, and we come to know them. We can know their heart. We can know their feelings. We can know their motivations, what drives them. In verse number 27, you also see the words male and female created he then. And so, both men and women are created in the likeness of God because the likeness of God, again, is not physical. The likeness of God is intellectual, emotional, spiritual, if you will. And so, both men and women have this stamp of God's image upon them. Look in verse 28. I want you to see another very important thing. And that is in verse 28, God gave Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, dominion. Look at the word dominion. The word dominion simply means authority. God gave Adam and Eve authority over the physical creation, the environment, if you will, the universe. Dominion means authority. Wherever a king rules, we say he has dominion. It's rulership, if you will. We've lost some of that today because God exalted man. He put him at the very top of the whole order of nature. Now we have, for a hundred years in America, we've been teaching evolution. And so in doing that, we degrade man's high position. We brought man down to where he's just the higher of the animals. The radical environmentalism of our day has brought the environment up to where it's equal with, uh, with man. 
And so we have the tree huggers who will go live in a tree rather than see it cut down out in California. We have uh, a whole scheme of something of progress maybe that hundreds of people would would be deprived if if that scheme did not go through but uh, because of some uh, animal species or something the environmentalists go picket the place the government sets it off and so man is being devalued but in the mind of God, man is the one who has dominion over the entire universe, over everything. In fact, it goes into the detail there and talks about the creeping things and the fowls and the fish. Man has authority, dominion over every single part of God's universe given to him in that dominion mandate there in Genesis 1 and 28. And then down in verse 31, I've already called your attention to it, but I want to keep your mind right centered here. And that is that God looked at everything he created and God said it is very good. It's very good. Well, we turn a page or two and we get to chapter 3 and something happens though and it's no longer very good. Sin enters. And it entered when man heeded the counsel of God's arch enemy and adversary, Satan. Satan came to visit the earth. He tempted Adam and Eve. And when he did, they heeded his counsel. God only gave Adam and Eve one rule, one law. Not ten. They didn't have the ten commandments. They have one commandment. And they broke it. They broke it pretty early after it being given to them. And so man rebelled against. He disobeyed the one thing that God said was his will for them. And when that happened, the whole universe became broken. It's out of relationship. It's out of sync with its creator. And Adam and Eve suffered the consequences of that. We call it the fall. The fall. And what is the fall about other than that man sinned? Here's the bottom line. In the fall, the image of God was broken. It was blurred. And so when you look at a human being today, you don't see a human being like they were before the fall. You see a blurry vision. It's like looking at a photograph, but it's blurred. The camera moved. When you look at a human being today... The image of God is distorted. It's like looking at it through a, a, a defective piece of glass or a dirty piece of glass. It's fogged over. We don't see the full image of God because man's very nature changed that day. Man became a sinner. And so then God devised a plan. We're back to God's plan. And what is the plan? The plan of God was redemption, or we would say the plan is salvation. And in the plan of salvation, what is God trying to do? Now, listen to me carefully, because I, I just think there's worlds of Christian people don't even understand what the big picture's about. They think that the only thing about salvation is keeping them from going to hell. And I want to tell you, that's secondary. That's not even primary. Did you know that? That's secondary. The plan of redemption is God's way, his method, his plan of restoring the image of God in human beings. 
He is seeking to make that image again very, very clear. And he does it through salvation. Salvation is the beginning point. Salvation is the starting point for you to again regain the image of God and have that in your life. The purpose of salvation, I like it like this. The purpose of God in salvation is not just to get man out of earth and into heaven. The purpose of salvation is to get God out of heaven and into man. Now, that is a critically important statement for you to understand. I hope you'll get it. It's worth writing down if you didn't. The purpose of salvation, redemption, is not just to get man out of earth and up into heaven. The purpose of redemption is to get God out of heaven and get him into man. And that's his great scheme, his great strategy, his great plan for all of mankind. It is God's will that his Holy Spirit dwell in us and that he give us a whole new dimension of life that we never had before we were saved. Now, I want to give you three things that God's will includes. For every single Christian, I don't care who you are, every one of us here, this is true for us. Number one, here's God's will for you. He wants to be, he wants you to be an extension of his presence in the world. He wants you and me to be an extension of his presence. Now, how does he do that? He does that through the Holy Spirit. When I'm saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within me, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If any man have not the Spirit, he is none of his. The Holy Spirit lives in me as a believer. He lives in you today as a believer. You don't see him. It's not a physical thing that you feel. It's a spiritual issue. And the moment that I was saved, the Holy Spirit took up dwelling in my body. And so today, wherever I go, I take him with me. And it's God's plan that I be an expression of his spirit. That if I go to eat today at a restaurant, that the people in that restaurant might have occasion to say that that man over there has God living in him. And if I lose my temper on the way because somebody cuts me off and I cuss them out, I still have the Holy Spirit of God living in me, putting me, him through that. Displeasing him, humiliating and embarrassing him. Your children act like that. And so I'm an expression of the Lord into the life of this world as a Christian. Secondly, I'm an extension of his, of his uh, very presence. I'm an extension of his presence. Wherever I go, he is going now because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And number three, I'm an exhibit of his power. Did you ever think of yourself, you're an exhibit to this old world? That people look and say, there's a Christian, or they say, well, he claims to be, but he's kind of inconsistent, or... They draw conclusions about God by looking at us. It's a serious thing to say I'm a Christian. In South Carolina, everybody's a Christian. I almost don't even ask them anymore. I just assume they're going to say that. I say to people, do you know you're saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? Well, I, you know, they tell me something. 
But there's not one single bit of exhibition of God's presence and God's power in their life sometimes. If I'm a Christian, he wants to extend his presence into my life. He wants to express his person through my life. He wants me to be an exhibit of his power. He wants me to be able to walk through a crowd of people that know me and say, that man's not perfect. But I'll tell you what, that man knows the Lord. The Lord is in that man's life. That man is a different person. Let me prove that to you. Go to the book of Colossians with me over in the New Testament. Keep your finger there in Genesis, please. But the book of Colossians chapter, chapter number 3. And let's go down to verse number 9, just the last part of that verse. In verse number 9 of Colossians, well, let me read the first part because we need to always touch that. Don't lie to one another. <laughs> but then it says, seeing that you have put off the old man, that's the person before salvation when the image of God was so distorted. You have put off the old man with his deeds, with his lifestyle, the way he lives. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed. And I'm going to skip a word or two because I want you to get the simple sense of the verse. You have put on the new man, which is after the image of him that created him. Do you see that right there in your Bible? In verse 9, put off that old way of life, that old conversation, that old lifestyle. Those old values. And put on the new man, which is created or renewed after the image of God. Become like God's ultimate ideal for you as a Christian. My, what a challenge. What a command from the Lord. Look at it. It is a command. And man, to live up to that is going to require everything that we have every minute of our life, will it not? In fact, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll never achieve perfection in that. But boy, I tell you what, God can do a powerful work in us that demonstrates his power. And we can be an extension of his presence right into the culture. Where you work, you can be an extension of God's presence. Where you live in the family, you can be an extension of God's presence. When I go shopping, I can be an expression of God's presence and an extension of his person. Right there in the store that I'm shopping in. Wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I go to see a ball game. There I am, the presence of God through the Holy Spirit living in me, a testimony to the people that are around me. What a challenge. What a wonderful thing, though, that God would trust me with that. So what is his purpose now for me? Well, my, my purpose then is in God giving me dominion he made me his steward. He made me his steward. Now I get to the essence of what stewardship is about. And now with the background, the teaching that I've just done, you're going to have a, a, a better, bigger, broader vision of what stewardship is about. What is stewardship about? Man sinned. I am a sinner. But if I receive Christ, he comes into my life through the Holy Spirit. 
He lives in me and dwells me. I'm to be an extension, an exhibit, an expression of his presence in the culture around me. I'm to be the salt. I'm to be the light. I'm to be different. And as I grow in Christ, the image of God is more clearly seen in my life. It's not distorted. It's not broken anymore. And now, look down in verse number 28 again. I can have the dominion, the authority that God wants me to have in my life because I'm his steward. What is a steward? A new definition that I came across and I'm going to share with you today. A steward is an agent, a manager, or an administrator who manages the property or affairs of an owner or a master of somebody else. Let me say it again. A steward, when God says you're a steward, he means that I'm an agent or I'm a manager or I'm an administrator and I manage his affairs. He's the owner. He's the master. He's the king. I'm in his service. I'm serving him. And he is living in me in his spirit. I want you to see this really in an illustration from the Bible itself. Genesis chapter 39 in your Bible. Genesis chapter 39, and it's the story of Joseph. Joseph was taken from his family, sold into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt. In Egypt, an army officer, in fact, the head man in the army of Egypt at that time, bought him as a slave put him in his house, and began to use him as his household servant, slave, and ultimately came to have great trust and confidence in him, even though he was just a, probably 19, 20 years old at the time. If you look in chapter 39 and verse 6, here is what it means to be a, a uh, and um, here's what it means for us to be a steward. 39 and 6. And Potiphar, that's the man, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. He said, I'm busy running the army. I have government business. I am a busy, important man with huge responsibilities. Joseph, here's the keys to the house. You're over everything in the house. You're over the house. You're over my possessions. You keep the books. You write the checks. You take care of my wife who is here if she needs something. Joseph, you're the man. You are my surrogate, my agent, my representative, my administrator. When I'm not here, you're in charge. Everything he had, he put it in Joseph's hand. To the point, look at verse 6. He knew not what he had. He knew not all he had, save the bread which he ate. He had to check with Joseph. He so trusted him, he turned everything over to him. Joseph, how much money do we have left in the bank? He didn't even know what he had. It was total trust, total confidence in Joseph. You know the story. The wife became fascinated with this handsome young man, and she tried to seduce him. And when he rejected her, she became angry at him and lied about him, and he went to jail because the steward, the one thing that a steward must have is trust. And now the trust 
was gone. A false accusation, a false witness was about to ruin Joseph's life. In fact, he was there, we believe, for about 12 years. But go back to his stewardship. Here's what I want you to gather today. The business of a steward is the master's business. Joseph didn't have his own business. And he said, you know what? I'm going to serve God too. I have an obligation and a duty. I'm going to show up for church on Sunday morning most of the time. I'm going to write a check every now and then. Um, If they have a special meeting, I might or might not come. Um, But I've got my own life to live. I'm making my own plans. That's not a steward. The steward says, the business of my master is my primary business too. Well, it doesn't mean I don't have to go to work. It doesn't mean I don't have to make my house payment. It doesn't mean that I, don't, I can't go and have some recreation and enjoy vacation. But what it does mean is that I don't ever put myself in the position above the master's business. The master's business is never neglected because I decided my business was more important than the master's business. A steward can't do that. A steward is responsible, fully responsible all the time. All the time. Being a steward is one of the most highly committed businesses in all the world. Because if I'm a steward of the master... The supreme business of my life is God's business. I would have a hard time convincing any audience of evangelical Christians in America today that's true. I don't even know if I expect you to believe me. But I'm going to tell you anyhow. You see, you think that it's my business to run the Lord's business. I'm telling you that as a minister of the gospel, I have no higher obligation to the Lord than does every Christian in this room. Now, I look over here and I see a man, he runs a construction business. Okay, that's his business. And he's got to run that construction business. He's got to run it well. He's got to keep it out of the black. But you know what? He can't put the construction business up here and say, you know what? I don't have time to serve God anymore. At that moment, he ceased to be a servant. The servant's business is God's business. And as a Christian, the stewardship, stewardship then becomes the very purpose of my entire life and existence, ladies and gentlemen. It's my vocation, my calling, every every single one of us. We're learning to manage in stewardship what God entrusts to us. Every one of us. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your blessings. But wait a minute. Do we think about that those blessings are a sacred trust that God has called me to manage? He's blessed me with life. He's blessed me with a long, long ministry. I was telling somebody the other day, all of my friends in the ministry have either retired or died or gone off into oblivion somewhere. I don't know where they are. And I feel like I'm the last one standing almost. 
Boy, he has blessed me. 50 years in one place. I only know one other preacher that has that. What a blessing. Wait a minute. That doesn't mean I can sit down and relax and say, you know what? Now I'm, you know, I've earned it. I can cool it for a while. No, no. It puts upon me a heavier responsibility than anybody I know. Because he has been so good to me and blessed me so richly. How could I ever even begin to say, no, Lord? I can't say, no, Lord. And you know what? That doesn't preclude me from having a good life. Because part of my stewardship responsibility is my family. It is having time off to enjoy my life. It doesn't mitigate any against anything that's legitimate. But stewardship is God putting everything in our, into our hands and giving us dominion and saying, now take care of it for me. Take care of it for me. And so learning to manage all that God has given to me, not for me, but for his cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What does the cause of Jesus Christ mean in your life today? And by the way, I would caution you from trying to separate the cause of Christ from your church. Because the way the cause of Christ works for every individual is, for the most part, through that local church. That's where you have the opportunities to serve. Somewhere along the road, we really got off track. We think we can be a good Christian, but not a good churchman. You can't find that in the Bible. Where is the cause of Christ on your priority scale? The business of a steward is the master's business. Three major areas. First of all, time. I only have one brief life. Oh, that we would not waste it. I read this week that the average American spends 50% of his waking hours with a screen in his or her hand. Before a screen. Television, phone, computer. And so much of that time we know is wasted. Video games, stuff like that. I only have one life. Don't come to the end of it and regret that you didn't use that life. There's so much to learn, so much to do, so much to experience. Don't waste your life. Use every single moment of it to improve yourself and to serve the Lord. The second area is talent, of course. Our ability, our gifts, our education, our experiences. Use them for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatsoever you do, do it for the glory of God. If you're a farmer, seek to have crops that glorify God. And people would say, boy, that godly man, look at God's blessing on his life. If you're a carpenter, whatever you do, do it the best you can do it. That the, the piece itself 
represents craftsmanship. It represents your time, your experience, your, your pride in being the Lord's servant. If you're a mechanic, people walk away and their car is fixed and it's fixed honestly. If I'm a doctor, I'm engaged in the healing process with Almighty God. I'm God's partner in this thing. He uses physicians to bring about healing. If I'm a merchant, the person gets a fair product for a fair price. If I'm retired, no, it's not for me to have leisure and forget all, everything in life. Retirement means I've got time to, to give to the Lord and experience to give to the Lord. In everything, he gets the glory and the honor. His business is always in need of our assistance. And it means our treasure, our money, our possessions, they all belong to him. Materialism is the temptation in America. Temptation is, it doesn't mean you've got a lot. Materialism. Some people are materialistic and are poverty-stricken. Others are wealthy and they're not materialistic at all. Materialism is when I begin to value things and power and possessions and prestige more than I value my stewardship and the work of God. I want you to write these three things down. And I'll close, and it'll be very quick, but I want, you to, I want you to capture these, if you will. The three things that God then requires of a steward. The three things that God wants from every one of us, he wants us to have these qualities in our life as stewards. Number one, he requires our heart. Proverbs 23 and 26, my son, give me thy heart. He wants your heart in his work and in his cause today, Christian. I've been watching uh, Dabo Sweeney since he won the national championship. Now, I still went to school at Carolina. And I'm not switching loyalties. I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. But I have to admire Dabo and his team. And I've been studying him because he's a study in leadership. You want to understand leadership? Just watch old Dabo. And here's the thing that I learned from him. Do you know what his motto is? Hashtag all in. Well, if you can get everybody to be all in, you can win a national championship. You won't win it if you're half-hearted. Mike, tell us a little something about why the church and the cause of Christ is struggling in America today, huh? Are all the Christians hashtag all in? <laughs> I don't think so. All in. That's what God means when he says, give me thy heart. He wants you to be all in as a steward for the cause of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you see all the problems of stewardship are solved. It really, today, I'm not trying to raise money. Have you noticed I've almost not mentioned it, and yet I'm preaching a stewardship message? My goal is not to raise money. It's to build people. And if I can get people into the Word of God and get them to be all in, money will take care of itself. It'll flow in here like a gusher, won't it? Nobody that's all in ever begrudges a dime out of a dollar or a day out of the week. When we're all in, 
You know, whatever the, whatever the master needs, right? Number two, he requires our heart. Number two, he requires faithfulness. First Corinthians 4 and 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithful means trustworthy, reliable, dependable. Trustworthy means loyalty to the Lord, to his cause, to his work, to his church. And the more trustworthy we are, do you know what the teaching of the Bible is? The more the Lord puts, in, puts on us. The more he can trust us, the more he gives us blessing that we can use for his glory. And the third and last thing is he requires accountability. He requires accountability. In Luke 16, the master there, it's a parable of stewardship, and he says, give an account. And you and I have to live with the fact that every day of our life, we must remember it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment, accountability. So let me sum it all up. God has a plan. The plan is to redeem man, to restore man's image or God's image in man. And then to put man in dominion to give him things in his life, time, talent, and treasure over which he has dominion. And the supreme business of my life is God's business. The supreme business of life is God's business. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, please.